welcome to the sixth season of Scene to Song, a musical theater podcast for people who love to discuss, critique, and celebrate musicals as a literary art form. I'm your host, Shoshana Greenberg, and each episode I'll bring on a guest to talk about a musical, musical theater writer, or a topic or trend in musical theater. If you enjoy this podcast, please take a moment to rate it on your podcast app and leave a review. It only takes a moment, as Jerry Herman would say, and you'd really be helping the show find more listeners. And please spread the word about the podcast to those who enjoy talking about musical theater. My guest today is Victoria Gordon. Victoria is an actress, singer, writer, and producer, and has performed at LA venues such as the Wallace Annenberg Center for the Performing Arts, the Broad Stage, and Feinstein's at Vitello's. Her solo cabaret show was one of the city's top shows in 2019, and in 2020 she performed 80 songs across 16 virtual cabaret performances. We are going to talk today about the character of Mama Rose in the musical Gypsy. Hey Victoria, I am so glad to have you back on the podcast. It is so good to be back on the podcast. (laughs) Great. Well, before we get into our topic, we'll start with our get to know our guest questions. Which musical has had the greatest impact on you? That's such a hard question because I feel like in general, musicals have had a big impact. That's why I'm here. But I think one that really stands out for me as cliche as this sounds is probably the music man. I mean, maybe that's cliche for a different generation, but (laughs) growing up that musical meant a lot to me. I think when, I don't know if you remember this, I think like 2002, 2003, maybe earlier, there was a TV version of the music man with Matthew Broderick and Kristen Chenoweth. And I had that on a tape recording and I wore out that tape and I had the CD and I wore out the CD. And I just thought it was such, it combined so many things I loved at the time, history, music, theater, et cetera. And it really inspired me to want to pursue entertainment professionally and not just as a spectator. Awesome. Yeah. I think the music man is one of my top shows as well. Although I don't think, I know I saw that TV movie at the time, but I don't remember it as well. So I'll have to revisit. I might've told you this before. Have you read the book? Um, but he doesn't know the territory. No. And I need to, it's definitely on my list. It's one of those books I always recommend to creatives. I feel like it speaks to the creative process and Mm. the time and effort and dedication it takes to get something off the ground. Even if you've never seen The Music Man, if you are a creative person, this book will teach you something and will put your struggles into perspective. What is the last great musical you saw? I think it has to be. We had The Secret Garden here in LA recently, and I really enjoyed it. I feel like as somebody who grew up listening to the original cast album, I expected it to be a little different. I expected more of like a lush presentation and it was much more minimalist, but at Mm. the same time, it's still a beautiful score. It's still a beautiful show. They made the right modifications from the book to make it a good musical. And I do hope eventually some version of that production sees Broadway, but not sure if that's happening. I hope it comes to New York or Broadway or whatever it is. Uh, Just would love to see it. Who is your favorite musical theater writer? Again, I think I'm going for a cliche here, but I'm a Sondheim girl through and through. My mom pulled out her company and Little Night Music cassette tapes when I was like seven years old. And 
I grew up listening to all of that. I feel like Sondheim can speak to the human condition in a way that few people can or could. I should put this all in the past tense because unfortunately he's no longer with us, but he really could speak to the human condition and even things that were so far out of his own experience in a way that is so relate was so relatable, was so realistic. And you don't see a lot of that. So he had a unique gift. I've always admired um, Cy Coleman for his ability to work with so many different people and create so much interesting material and Cole Porter because so few people play with words the way he does. In the more contemporary sphere, I'm an Aaron's and Flaherty girl. Um, I think nobody does an opening better, an opening number better than okay. Aaron's and Flaherty. They really know how to get the entire show out in front of you and you know exactly where things are going. And um, we did talk about them a little bit the last time when I was on your anniversary show, but of course, Bach and Harnick mm-hmm. did some of my favorite musicals. She Loves Me as a Special Place in My Heart. Fiddler, of course, as a Special Place in My Heart. So yes, I admire many composers. It'd probably be shorter if we just did Who Don't You Like, but let's not do that. <laughs> yes, we'll take these ones we'll take out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, what's your favorite musical that no one has heard of? I got a quirky one. Um, there's a guy on YouTube. I'm assuming a guy because the username is Mr. Eggerman, but it could just be a nod to a little night music. I don't know. But he posts clips like soundboard clips and occasionally recordings from obscure musicals. Mm. And one that he has that I've gotten really into is called Dear Anyone, which ran on, I think it was in the West End in like the early 1980s. It was based on a BBC drama about like a Dear Abby type character. And the score is really fun. I don't know what didn't work about it or why it just kind of fizzled out, but I've really enjoyed listening to the clips he has because they're actually compelling. And at the time, I think they would have done just fine on Broadway. So I'm very curious to learn more about where that came from and where it went and why it didn't work out. I always think the musicals that didn't work can be more interesting than the ones that did. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool that he, the well, at least the YouTube account is has all these obscure musicals on it. I'll have to check that out. Uh, who is your favorite hero character or protagonist in a musical? And who is your favorite villain or antagonist? Hmm. Hero is an interesting one. I think one of my favorite characters who's, I guess we'll put in the protagonist stage, not really a hero. I always love, because we talked about She Loves Me a second ago. I've always thought that Amalia is such mm-hmm. a great character because she is, in that time, a much more flawed character than a lot of other characters like her would be. She's the soprano, but she's a quirky soprano. And that's not a part that I think we saw much of then. We still don't see a lot of it, but I think it's really cool to have this quirky soprano who hits the high notes, but also isn't the perfect paragon of virtue. And I mean, not that she's not a good person. That's not what I'm trying to say, but she's got flaws. She's got faults. She's got flaws. She's got ideas in her head. She's clearly very smart. And she's more than just a pretty thing with a pretty voice. Like she's mm-hmm. a very complex character. And favorite antagonist. Um, hmm. Well, it depends on how you want to frame antagonist, but I think I'm going to go with the witch in Into the Woods because hmm. even though she's not really the, I hope this isn't a spoiler. She's not really the bad guy of the story per se, but she is the realist of the story. Mm -hmm. She is the one who comes in, especially with Last Midnight, and is able to say, hey, guys, you know, you can look for the blame all you want here. I'm happy to take that because that's not the point. Like, you all think you're the good guy. That's not how this works. Y'all are not, frankly, the good guys. It's a very ambiguous show when it comes down to it. And I think these recent productions, because I know it was obviously on Broadway. It was here in L.A. It's the same production. Um, And I believe, wasn't it in... It was not on, it, before it was on Broadway, the same production was, was it in the park? Where was it? You would know. 
It was, uh, this one was at City Center Encores first Encores. and then went to Broadway. There yeah. was one in the park like 10, a little over 10 years ago. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh, you mean like last that, week? Yeah, okay. Yeah, the one in the park was, yeah, that one was a little over 10 years ago and that was like a different, that was a different production. Cool. Well, let's move into our topic, which is the show Gypsy, but specifically the character of Mama Rose through the years. Uh, we're going to look at this character specifically and her different, the different people who have portrayed her and kind of why this character, why people want to play this character. What is it about her? Um, so yeah, I think, uh, we can start with the character of Rose herself, but also just our experiences with the show and maybe which productions we've seen and our history with it. Yeah. Well, I have always loved Gypsy. It's one of those musicals that goes in a class with like, again, she loves me. I feel like that's all I talk about at this point, but um, <laughs> there are these really excellent musicals that I feel kind of just come I mean, I guess you'd argue they're technically outside the golden age of Broadway, although Gypsy kind of falls into golden age, but they just, they encapsulate one of the earliest pinnacles of the American musical. When we went from, you know, little operettas that had sort of light plots to getting Oklahoma, which is the first like modern musical, to now we've really hit a pinnacle in the art form, in my opinion, where we have stories with complex characters that aren't all happy, that have happy moments, that have sad moments, that are extremely deep and yet very accessible without, they don't require lots of knowledge, lots of backstory. Anyone can understand these stories. And mm -hmm. so I've always loved Gypsy. I even, and I'll probably talk about this a little later, um, in 11th grade, I had to give a persuasive speech. And most people talked about things like the death penalty or insert social issue here. I decided to argue why Ethel Merman should have won the 1959 <laughs> Tony over Mary Martin. This is what I did with my persuasive speech in high school. So yeah, you can tell where I stand on this sort of thing. But in general, I think Gypsy is one of those shows that every couple of years, somebody seems to crop up to want to do it, which obviously we're going to talk about why that is. Yeah. The only production of professional caliber that I've seen is actually Bette Midler's TV film version. Mm -hmm. Timing wise, I never got to see. The first one I could have theoretically seen was Bernadette's, but I wasn't going to New York at 10. And if I was, my parents right. certainly were not going to run a gypsy. Um, not that my mom doesn't love it. It's just, I think she would have probably picked other things at that point. And yeah. in the case of Patti Lapone, I was again in Los Angeles. It hasn't been on Broadway in my adult life. So mm. that feels very strange to say, but yeah, I would really like to see a great production, but, and I'm sure we'll talk about this too. I'm not exactly sure who I'd want to see as Rose at this point. I feel right. like there's a bit of a gap in roses that we're not really cranking out roses the way we used to but mm. that might not be a bad thing either i'm sure we'll figure out if that is a bad thing or not right yeah i've i have seen probably because of my proximity to new york and then living in new york a lot of the broadway uh revivals the first one i saw was it was actually my second broadway show that i saw um in 1990, we saw the what was the Tyne Daly production, but at this point, Linda Lavin was in it. But I was very young, so it's very hard to remember. I have some images, you know, from that from that production, but just the 
to be, I, I wouldn't be able to talk about it, you know, as someone who was there, but, um, the, uh, but I did, I did also see the Bernadette Peters production and the Patti Lapone production, both at Encores and on Broadway. And I also saw a production at Paper Mill Playhouse that was supposed to have Betty Buckley in it, but she was out that day. Uh, so we saw her understudy, but uh, still a good production, I think. Um, that was in like the late 90s. So I've seen a lot of gypsies <laughs> over the years. And of course, I saw the, when I was really little, I saw the Rosalind Russell movie. And when I was older, I saw the Bette Midler version as well. So all of those, yeah, I, I would call Gypsy one of my, one of my top musicals. Uh, Same. Yeah. I guess we can talk about the, just give a, the plot of the show. It'll help us get into talking about Mama Rose and who she is. Um, since it's, it's about her. <laughs> but yeah, how would you how would you describe the the show? Well, to the complete novice, I would say it is a cautionary tale about children in show business, but <laughs> it's more than that. It's really the story yeah. of a woman who desperately wants fame and uses her children to try to get that fame and it ultimately backfires, I would say in a pretty spectacular mm. way. And I think in that way, it's a very universal story about somebody wanting fame and using their children to get it. I don't think this is such a shocking story in 2023. Right. But at the time, I think it at in the 50s, remember, it's based on a book. It's based on a true story. It's based on the life of Gypsy Rose Lee, the stripper, and her memoir. And I think at the time, this might have been a somewhat shocking story to people to see this woman who gallivanted around the country with her two children trying to make her younger daughter a star, and then when her younger daughter ran off trying to make her older daughter a star, and then having her daughter become a striptease artist. I mean, stripper is kind of a strong word for Gypsy Rosalie because she did strip, but it was really the striptease that's what mm -hmm. made her famous, you know, the yeah. whole act. So um, that's kind of my brief summary of Gypsy. Do you want to add something a yeah. little more story related? Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's basically it. I mean, she's, I guess, the the ultimate stage mother. And yeah, as you said, like now we kind of know what a stage mother is, you know, we have like the image of like stage mother. Oh, those, those, those people who are like always with their children <laughs> at, you know, at the auditions being horrible. Yeah. I think, I mean, yeah. And I guess I would just add like plot wise, you know, she, she's going, she's trying to make her kid. It, it spans the kid's childhood into adulthood and she's trying to part of it is that she's trying to keep her kids young so that they could like not keep them young but keep them appearing as young to have them like continue to do these vaudeville acts because it was like the heyday of vaudeville when they were young and as they grow older and she keeps pushing them into these vaudeville acts. You kind of see like vaudeville is going away. And now that's like these, bur they're now these burlesque houses. And that's kind of where the strip, where how she gets into stripping is they're in a vaudeville 
they have a vaudeville act and they're booked in this place that's uh, actually a burlesque house and they have to uh, pivot a little bit. <laughs> and that is one of my favorite moments in the show because I feel like if you want to talk character defining moments, it comes towards the end, which is a rare time to have such a character defining moment. But in that moment, when Rose says, instead of saying, you know, she's at a crossroads, she could say, okay, you know what? I made a mistake. We're not going to work tonight. We're going to find another place tomorrow. But instead she says, no, 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 I got this. We're going to change the arrangement a little bit, find a different costume. And that's when you realize just how obsessed this woman is. I mean, even if it wasn't clear before, it's a big character defining moment. And props to Arthur Lawrence for getting it in there towards the end too, because it really drives it home. That really is Rose's character. Like she... It feels like throughout the show, like, she's kind of like, these are my circumstances. And how can I work within the, like, what can I do within my circumstances to make it work? And she will do anything, but she, like, understands the circumstances and she, like, understands how she can use what's around her to push everything her forward pushing her kids along there's the certain circuits the vaudeville circuits she's like pushing them like they they do like get into a better circuit (laughs) i think at some point the other thing we leave out we're leaving out that is so important for the uninitiated is that she has these two daughters one of them the younger daughter is this precocious adorable naturally vivacious performer she just she gets up and she she sings Mm -hmm. let me entertain you and she's she's a show kid the older daughter is not quite that. She's right. a little more timid. She's not very comfortable on stage. She's quieter. She's more like thoughtful. The younger daughter eventually gets sick of being pushed around. And again, this is probably a spoiler at this point, but decides to abandon ship. The yeah. older daughter is the one who becomes the stripper. And in a lot of ways, when we're talking about Louise, the older daughter's plotline in the show, it's about finding her place. There's another moment at the burlesque where she's staring at herself in the mirror. She's all made up and dressed and ready to go out. And she realizes for the first time that she's pretty. Mm -hmm. And it's like, when you think about, it's also really a story of parental neglect in some ways, because Louise was always pushed to the side in deference to June because June had the talent. June was going to be the star. June was going to make them rich and successful and whatever. And ironically, it was Louise. And Mm -hmm. it's really her growth as a character as well, which is why I get why the show, the show is called Gypsy. Really, it's about Rose. And because of the nature of the show, Louise always ends up being the supporting character. But it's kind of ironic that in her own life story, this woman became the supporting character. Right. (laughs) When you think about it like that, it's like this was actually her book. This was her life. Her title. Really about her mom. Right. It is. Yeah, it is kind of ironic in that way. Although Louise does go through, I guess, the biggest transformation. It, It is... It is her story through her mom's, you know, through that character, through her mom's character, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. But yeah, but it is Rose. And I was looking at the Stephen Sondheim book, Finishing the Hat, and he does have a character description of Rose in his notes here uh, because he's talking about Ethel Merman, the first, you know, original Rose uh, and they about how she sometimes didn't appeal to the public because she was so such a strong blunt person but that's what they wanted for this part because the qualities of Rose are obnoxious indomitability and unstoppable confidence 
and total absence of self-censorship. <laughs> That's Rose. Yeah. For me, like part of what uh, I think is so, what draws people to her character so much is that, yeah, she just like has this goal and she like, well, as I said, like she, she figures out in every moment, like how to make it, how she's going to make it happen. What's around me? What can I use? And I think people are drawn to those types of char- at least characters. Maybe you don't actually want to be in the same room as that, <laughs> as that person in your daily life. But I think people are drawn to those characters because you want to, you want to watch them. You want to see like how they're going to figure things out, how they're going to get, push things forward to the next to the next scene to the next whatever's next in their in their lives oh for sure and in the case of rose in particular it's so fascinating because again arthur lawrence who wrote the book and directed several of the productions i think he directed all the way through patty lapone i mean that man really that this show was a huge part of his career yeah he didn't direct the bernadette peters one i think no that was sam mendes Mendes. that was a whole other thing but he directed i think the time daily and the patty lapone if i'm not mistaken he he's he's he did this show several times it wasn't like he did it once and walked away he was intimately involved in productions Mm -hmm. and i think he even advised sam mendes and so like he was involved in many ways but at the end of the day he really wrote a very tight book that doesn't give too much exposition, but gives Rose, gives the audience the sense of the wheels turning on Rose. Anytime she starts thinking of an idea, you feel that moment of she's going to come up with the next thing. There's never a sense of, well, Rose is at the end of her rope and she's got nowhere to go until, of course, Mm -hmm. the very end. But that's mostly by Rose's design at that point. It's so obvious that she's painted herself into a corner here and now she's got to figure out how to get out. So I've talked about what kind of draws me to her character, but what do you think draws actors to this role? Okay, I'm going to start with a slightly cynical approach. <laughs> and I think that is, it is very much an awards bait kind of role. True. Um, of the five Broadway productions, three of the Roses have won the Best Actress Tony. Um, and as I said before, I made a strong case for a fourth. So it's definitely that <laughs> kind of part that gets that attention. It's also, honestly, a great part. It's a great character study. It's a lot of fun to try to explore a character like this. There's so much material given to the character in terms of, like I say, on the page and also what an actor can bring to it. And then honestly, if you have the voice for it, it's a great vocal part. Mm, I mean, some yeah. of those songs are iconic. Everything's Coming Up Roses is no joke. You be swell. You'll be great. I think for a lot of performers, the idea of getting to be in this show where you're playing an extraordinarily complex and difficult character and yet figuring out ways to make the audience cheer for her and Mm -hmm. feel for her is such a great opportunity. And why we've gotten so many productions in such short order, I can't say unless we go back to my other point about awards bait. But at the (laughs) same time, I think it's become kind of like a thing for actresses of a certain age. They just they want to be Mama Rose. They want to have that moment. Yeah, apparently it's called the King Lear of musical theater roles for women. (laughs) I'll take it. I think it's it's definitely got that vibe. But like I said earlier, I do think we're hitting a point now, and we can talk about this more once we've gone through some of the actual women who've done it. 
I can't think of that many people off the top of my head where I really want to see their mama rose. I do have one very creative idea. And if you want to hear it now, I'll tell you. And if you want me to wait, I will wait. You want to hear it? Well, let's just hear it now. Yeah. Okay. Hear me out. So a couple of years ago, Amy Sherman Palladino was supposed to be adapting Gypsy. Oh, yeah. Which I actually kind of support. I feel like her writing style would actually suit that very well. Mm. She can sing, although most people don't know this. I would like to see Alex Borstein as Rose. Oh, I'm into it. (laughs) She has that little mighty, can fight through anything kind of attitude. And I just think something about Alex Borstein in the part would be an extraordinary opportunity for the audience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm totally into that. I mean, a lot of different people have done the role in different ways, but I, I don't, I definitely don't want to see another person who's similar to Ethel Merman. And and people have have been different. Like Angela Lansbury is not Ethel Merman. Like you know, it's it's already been established that like this role is for different types of. Act- I mean, obviously Bernadette Peters, although that was, I think, noted for being like a very different take. But oh yeah. Um, yeah, but I I just yeah I want to see I want to see different different people do it as long as they can handle it vocally. But like, would well, and would part of it is one. that Ethel Merman is the rare case that I can think of of an actor in such a sh- in a show that is so reproduced and that we've established has been done so many times. She is one of the few people I can think of in that kind of role who puts such a mark on it. Yeah. I mean, to use the phrase that the youths probably use, she dropped the mic on that one. Like she just. <laughs> She left an iconic, like that was iconic, what she did in Gypsy. And mm-hmm. I think it's crazy to me that so many people have been able to do it since because she remains kind of the like most associated with the role to those who know theater. And right. justifiably, because she gave such an amazing performance, I think when you see some of these roles where they've been played by so many people, it's rare that people who are savvy on the situation look back at the original and think that's the person who set such a strong unquestionable template that like has a pop culture standing as the template. Even in the case of like Wicked, a lot of people mm-hmm. have favorite Glinda's and Alphabas who are not the original. Right. But in this case, I think Ethel Merman almost said, okay, everyone, anyone wants to play this part someday? Challenge accepted. I have just given <laughs> you something big to live up to. And I think it's hard to find a review for a more contemporary production that doesn't reference Ethel Merman. Yeah. But and also the role was written for her because True. they knew they were having her in it and they wrote yeah they wrote specifically one thing I also read in Sondheim's book was that they didn't know what her acting ability was because they her acting had never been tested before (laughs) in that in this kind of more like dramatic way so uh they would you know write for her to like have the big song like with everything's coming up roses like they would write for her to have like this big song to do what she can they know she could do and they're like oh then we'll put you know louise and herbie will be there herbie i don't even think we mentioned in the oh, right synopsis <laughs> herbie's the her love and in- her her partner her her love interest partner person um so like to have them there and they'll be the act they'll be the people who are the actors in the scene that will provide the acting chops that she can play off of but since she's not the strong actor we can just you know we'll be fine if they're in the scene (laughs) it kind of reminds me of what i've read about the tv show roseanne oh yeah being developed and it was like well you know we're writing for a star and uh but she's not an actor so we'll just populate the rest of the scenes with 
actual actors so they'll they'll elevate her they'll they'll fill in <laughs> the, that's kind the of, holes yeah that's kind of how a lot of those comedian driven tv shows were developed um obviously seinfeld same thing so yeah that's definitely not a new thing i just think it's very clever how they were able in this case to use music mm. to put yeah. together and by the way speaking of herbie i think the reason we haven't mentioned herbie is that at the end of the day, I get why he's there. He's there for romance. He's there to give Rose something else to do besides, you know, obsess over her children. But I feel like of the main characters in the show, Herbie is the weakest Mm. in terms of development. I feel like we have such clear understandings of where June and Louise and Rose are coming from. And with Herbie, in the song, You'll Never Get Away From Me, he says he's no Boy Scout. But I don't know that we ever really got substantial Mm -hmm. evidence that Herbie... We never. I don't feel like Herbie was as well developed, and I think if today, if the show were being written for the first time today, Herbie wouldn't be a character probably. Mm, interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you could tell the story of that show without him. He's just like another person who is, I guess, part of her life, part of her support system, who is not there at the end. I guess. He's a man in a female-driven <laughs> show, and yeah. the woman has to have someone to love. So, right. yeah, I think I do think today there would be a chance. Because in the book, have you read Gypsy Rose Lee's I no haven't, no. I have. And in the book, there isn't really a Herbie. There are a variety of men who come in and out mm. of her mother's life. And I'm guessing in 1959, already having her be with this man she's not married to was a huge risk. Yeah. So having her be with a range of men and just let them... <laughs> flop in and out of her life was probably seen as you know the work of a wanton harlot and that was not their leading lady so I think there there are a lot of cultural things to keep in mind probably about how Herbie even works very true yeah yeah I think you know there are also the songs like the you know the softer songs too which it's not just uh these belting numbers like there's also numbers where Rose can show her softer side Definitely, bit. like you'll never get away from me or small world. And I think it's easy to reduce Ethel Merman down to her belting moments, but the woman had the ability. And I think anyone who's familiar with Annie Get Your Gun can see from that show that she definitely had the ability to take those softer songs and really do something beautiful with them. So I'm glad she got that opportunity. <laughs> Never get away from me. You can climb the tallest tree. I'll be there somehow. True. You could say, hey, here's your hat. But a little thing like that couldn't stop me now. The character of Rose is not Jewish, and I think people who have only seen the Bette Midler version think that the character uh, have been mistaken that it's the character is Jewish. Yeah, that's valid. I can see how that would happen. And it's so funny because you and I are both Jewish. So for us, it's yeah. like, oh, that's just a, a woman playing a character. And I think for non-Jews, it's like, oh, so they were Jewish too. Well, that must have been really hard traveling around the country like that as Jews. But um, it's just very funny how that has evolved. And yeah. Actually, as I'm looking over our list here, I think she's the only Jewish Rose. Yeah, I Linda mean, Lavin, I saw but... Linda Lavin, right? Yeah, uh, that would be the other one, I think. Um, who and and she was a replacement, but she's so well known that uh, that you know she can definitely be part of the the list of big 
roses, but, uh, but yeah, usually they haven't been, um, which is funny because when you look at the character description, it, uh, you know, somebody who is loud and brassy and, you know, uh, could be a lot of Jewish women. <laughs> well, and it's also important to think about the context of the show being written and developed. It was developed and written by Jews. Right. So it's it's kind of like West Side Story where you have to think about, because well, it's the same guys, essentially. It's like, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. This is their very nice Jewish perspective on this thing. And I think it's easy to forget that that shapes it too, because it right. can't be, you have the bias of the creator in there. And in this case, you had a lot of Jews in the room and they probably had Jewish. I mean, we know Sondheim had quite a mother. So um, mm-hmm. their own Jewish mothers who influenced their perception of Rose. Because again, we also go back to, they were all men. And right. they were writing the story of a woman and a woman that they themselves deemed difficult, that other women would deem difficult. And that already gives a bias that, yeah, I think we've just established <laughs> a lot of biases that went into the creation of Rose and how Jewish or not Jewish the character could be perceived based on those biases. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was looking at footage of Angela Lansbury, which you can find on YouTube, of her performance. And I was... I, I was, I guess, surprised. I never really, I knew she had obviously done that role and won, she, I think she won the Tony she that did. year for that role. Um, but I'd never heard it or seen it. And I was struck by how different it is just in terms, I mean, it is like Angela Lansbury's persona, like in the character <laughs> of Rose. It's, it's an interesting take because it was the first... And at the time, revivals were not that well known. This was the early 70s. So Ethel Merman was still alive. And Mm -hmm. it was really done for the West End. And actually, in sort of lore of the show, in the early 1970s, a group of West End producers announced that they would be mounting Gypsy on the West End, starring Elaine Stritch. And they could not get financing. So they said, okay, we'll drop Elaine Stritch. We're going to get Angela Lansbury to star. Suddenly the money starts pouring in. Uh. I... I'm so sorry that that's what happened because I would have loved Elaine Stritch as <laughs> yeah. Rose. I just feel like if you want to talk about bizarre interpretations or like unique interpretations, she would have set a whole new mold for what that role could have looked like. And mm. especially from a vocal perspective, I would have appreciated that because it might've opened up my worldview and others as well about what Rose can sound like and how those songs can be carried out. But regardless, Angela Lansbury did a great job, but I find the production itself kind of strange. And I think it goes back to the whole revivals weren't really a thing. And the directors are trying to put their own spin on it. Um, I always cite the scene, and you can get this on the um, West End cast album. That's the transition from the children being children to the children being teenagers and young adults. And just how they cut out so much. I mean, basically, June's character has been reduced to like a couple singing lines. It's not Mm -hmm. at all the same. So I, I really, it's a weird production. But Angela Lansbury brings something different to it, which I think is a little more gentleness and a little less of that obnoxious thing that Sondheim originally talked about. She brings more of a, you know, I just want the best for my kids kind of, (laughs) oh, shucks. I just couldn't figure it out perspective. And it's interesting, but yeah, Yeah, it's definitely not the strongest of the group. Right. I mean, I was, yeah, I was watching, they have footage of a few songs that I was watching and the, when she's doing together, uh, wherever we go, it's very like fun. And it's like, sweet and 
her character and she's like dancing around doing Angela Lansbury like kooky like head moves and stuff. When the audience boos, we don't drop our cues. We always can use what they throw. The fruit may fly, but why complain? Tomato sauce goes great with chow mein. Together. But then I was thinking like, wow, this, and because then you get to like Rose's turn and I'm like, wow, this really makes like that, um, like the distinction between the two, like where she gets to at the end with Rose's turn, like that much scarier because yeah, like you're with her, like, like it's kind of like one of those mothers that is kind of like warm and like gentle and inviting and, and until the, there's a turn, you know? <laughs> You know, she like until... snaps. It's just yeah. this moment of snapping. <laughs> Whereas I feel like with some of these others, we get the impression that she's hanging on by a thread all along and she just, you know, finally has to tell everyone how much of a threat it's been. Yeah. Well, then I guess that brings us to the Tyne Daly, Linda Lavin, uh, 1989, 1990 revival, um, which again, I saw, but have very little memory of as I was like seven years old. <laughs> when I saw that but um but I think it was that like Tyne Daly was much closer to like the Ethel Merman type of performer portrayal um, totally I mean yeah. she's in so many ways I feel like Tyne Daly is one of the closest people we've had to Ethel Merman since mm-hmm. Ethel Merman and I think it was probably, and I wasn't obviously there, but I think it was probably somewhat surprising and exciting to audiences to see her doing this part because she was so known for her TV work to then turn around and do this. Um, But I think her production is the one that I think I grew up listening to the cast album of the most Mm. just because it was what was available to me. I think that's what my library had. So I always enjoyed hers. And definitely if you're like, I want to see Ethel Merman, but newer, you're going to get Tyne Daly. Um, I imagine, and you can tell me, Linda Lavin was probably a slightly kookier, more Angela you know, Lansbury. Well, I was watch. I, I went on YouTube and I was like, "Show me Linda Lavin in <laughs> in Gypsy." And so I watched her Rose's turn. It what it was very interesting. It was one of those things where I was like, "Okay, like this is this is different. Like this is not like she's kind of going a little bit unexpected places here." I, the, the ways of portraying it that I wasn't expecting. Um, I, I liked it. Yeah. I'm glad yeah, I, I'm I, glad I saw it, even though I have no memory of it. <laughs> I imagine there was something interesting there. I mean, she's definitely an interesting performer. And I think yeah. the older she gets, the more we kind of see her as like the quirky older lady type. But when she was yeah. younger, she was more of a straight woman. So maybe I'm assigning like 2020s Linda Lavin right. logic to the 90s. <laughs> but um, the other thing that I found when I was researching this that was kind of interesting was that Arthur Lawrence said in 1989 that there were two other actresses who wanted the part, but neither one was approached. One was Bernadette, who mm. obviously wound up doing it later. But I don't think in 89, anyone in a million years would have said, let's cast Bernadette Peters right. as Rose. Like, like, that was so, I mean, that she was not, that was not the right time. But the other one, which I am kind of disappointed we didn't get, is Liza Minnelli. Oh, interesting. Liza would have at that time, I mean, at any time, but at that time, <laughs> given 
where she was professionally, I think she would have brought something very interesting to Rose vocally, dramatically. I think her background and experience as a person would have really informed her portrayal of Rose in a way that nobody else has so far been able to lay claim to. Um, And I just, I feel like it's a shame that we didn't get that, but yeah. But yeah, then we do get Bernadette in 2003 and yeah, I think this is like the most controversial revival. <laughs> okay, I say this as a massive Bernadette fan. Bernadette is the person who taught me to love my curly hair. Bernadette is the person who, I mean, she's a huge inspiration to me. I've seen her so many times. I've seen her twice in concert. I've seen so many things. My complaint about Bernadette and Gypsy is I just think the sort of adhering to Ethel Merman thing right. starts to crack. And for Bernadette in particular, she's played two Ethel Merman roles. Clearly, Ethel Merman is someone who inspired her greatly, but they're just so different. And I wish Bernadette, who is so about uniqueness and originality, had taken that uniqueness and carried that all the way through the music. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I also appreciated like the different take on it. As I've said, like I'm really into different takes on, on this yeah. character. So I definitely appreciated her different take on it. And like the, I think it was that the actual person of Rose was closer to how Bernadette was doing it um, yeah. that she was a little more like that she was more petite that she was a little more sexual like that um, that kind of personality the thing that I find interesting about this production is like you say Bernadette was closer to who Rose was and she yeah. also I think something we should acknowledge is that Bernadette was actually in Gypsy twice she or maybe right. three times she was on the national tour at one point as the understudy for Dainty June And I think she did a summer stock production where she was Dainty June. So she had experience with Gypsy and she was a child actress. So she had that background going into it as well. And Sam Mendes did some weird stuff. I don't necessarily feel like he totally got Gypsy. Like, (laughs) like I just, I don't necessarily, like when I listen to that cast album, there's kind of an outlier sense to it. Like it doesn't quite Mm. fit the others in some ways. I don't know that he was really a big fan. The thing with Bernadette is her Rose's turn. She still does in concert and I think it's great. Yeah. I think she really, you know, had an opportunity to make that role her own and acting wise she did. And vocally, I think it was a tricky role for her regardless. Yeah. I just feel like there are some quirks about this production that have less to do with any one actor in it and more to do with the fact that, again, I'm not really sure Sam Mendes was the director I would have picked. And I Mm. think Arthur Lawrence expressed something similar at one point, like Bernadette really brought something different to the character, but he had no, like, he just did not understand what he was doing. And I think that's probably part of why Arthur Lawrence jumped back into the fray Mm. for Patty because he thought, wait a minute, I got to write this ship. But (laughs) that's, yeah, I mean, it's a tricky one. That's definitely a controversial production. And it's one of only two that didn't get the best actress, Tony. But that was also a year where there was a very unstoppable show. And that was Hairspray, if I'm not mistaken, was the same year. And that show was just unstoppable. I mean force of nature on Broadway. So it had some rough timing in that regard. I made you. And you want to know why? You want to know what I did it for? Because I was born too soon and I started too late, that's why. But what I have in me, I could have been better than any of you. What I got in me. What I've been holding down inside of me, oh, if I ever let it out, there wouldn't be signs big enough. There wouldn't be lights bright enough. 
You know, pretty similar to the merman type. Uh, I am always going. To, I, I just I have to throw this caveat out there. I always thought there was something very funny about how quickly those two revivals happened. It was like 2003 to 2005, and then like 2008, 2009. Like it just was like right. gypsy straight through on Broadway. And um, yeah, you got to wonder about the timing on that one. But at the same <laughs> yeah. time. Patty did bring something to it that was very familiar to audiences. And mm-hmm. um Yeah. I I really liked that production. I remember. I feel like everything really gelled in that one. I feel like that was kind of like a very faithful to the original production. I mean, Arthur Lawrence directed, so that's part of it. It was right. very faithful to the original. It was very nostalgic. It was kind of just like the contemporary version of the original show. And also the timing was such in 2008, 2009, we're talking about like the heart of the recession. So in order Mm -hmm. to keep a show like that alive for any period of time, there had to be an element of nostalgia and encouraging Mm -hmm. people to see something that felt familiar and comfortable. And if you think back on that time and the shows that didn't make it, they didn't have that comfort feeling. Now, personally, as a theater fan, I'd rather get that comfort nostalgia feeling like this by seeing a great classic revival than by seeing a mid-range movie as a musical but that's just me i mm-hmm. i'm open to other people's opinions but i it worked it just it didn't last i think it lasted about a year because nothing was lasting at that time as i'm sure you well remember but then we did have in 2015 as you were going to point out mm-hmm. the west end rose that i'm kind of surprised never came to broadway actually but i, know, I thought it was going to my only thought is that people were like no you cannot bring this show back three times in two decades <laughs> like they're we need a break. We need, in fact, so. Forbidden Broadway had that joke. They referred to it as the, when Patty came in, they referred to it as the next annual revival of Gypsy. And, <laughs> um, so yeah, there was a little, there might've been a little bit of Gypsy fatigue, but um, Imelda Staunton, and as I said, anyone who knows Harry Potter and theater had to see something like that coming because she's just got that indomitable mm-hmm. little personality that combines the like, I mean, that's just who she is. I mean, she's not clearly as a person, like that but that's her character type that's what she plays and i just think her spirit that she brought to it was pretty fantastic and what i've seen of her performance looks like it was just amazing you have to have i mean it's threading a needle to find that part and that's why i always say when people are like well who do you think will be the next rose my response is i have no idea because Mm -hmm. we don't really crank out the kind of vocalists that we're used to in that part 
I struggle with this question and I don't know if you have anyone in mind that you feel or if you feel similarly. I'm horrible at casting. So I, I, I <laughs> doubt that I would come up with a, with anybody, but, but I think you're right. I mean, it's hard to, it's hard to think of somebody. There will be another Rose. There will be someone else. Someone will come out of left field and will say, I did not know that. But I'll tell you the other thing. We're, I hate to say it. We're only talking about white women. There are probably plenty mm-hmm. of women of color if we started thinking about it. It's a specific vocal role, but it's also a specific personality, as we've been talking about, a personality role, you know, so it's like marrying the two. Well, it's like, you know who would be good? This is a weird left field choice, too, but I would love to see her take on this part in some way is Anne Harada. Mm, There's something about Anne Harada that I could just see her doing it. And she's kind of got like the Angela Lansbury type kookiness. Um, She's got a little kookiness. Yeah. And some brassiness and just yeah. give me this sense of, you know, she's like this tall, but she could kick anyone's behind. So yeah. I feel like Anne toughness. I wanted to end with just like, uh, I probably should have done this in the beginning when we were talking about the character itself, but like, what, what are your favorite lines, I guess, from the show, either lyrics or just from the book that kind of like encapsulate who Rose is as a character? I got two for you. One of them is from the song, Everything's Coming Up Roses, where Rose says, you can do it. All you need is a hand. We can do it. Mama is going to see to it. And she's Mm -hmm. encouraging her daughter, I'm going to make you a star. We're going to do this together. So I think that's a really big one of like, I'm the thing you need for your success. But then the second one is actually said to Rose by Louise. Um, Towards the end of the show, Rose is mad at Louise because Louise is like living her own life and not doing what Rose wants. Mm-hmm. And Rose asked her, what do you think I did it all for? And she says, well, I thought you did it for me, mama. And right. I think that is such a wake up call moment of like, oh my God, this kid really thought that her mother was doing this for her own best, for her daughter's best interest rather than her own best interest. And I think it's such an eye-opening moment for both characters. It's an eye-opening moment for the audience looking at Louise and realizing that she was that naive. And it's an eye-opening moment for Rose to realize, oh my God, was I doing it for them? Mm-hmm. Was I doing it for me? So those are two lines that I think are really emblematic of who Rose is and also that have really powerful moments in the context of the show. I I will add my, my t- I'll have two also. Um, the, one of them is in that, you know, in Rose's turn or right before Rose's turn where she's taught, she kind of talks a little bit before she starts the song be like because she's going off of what louise just said to her uh you and you know why did you do it and she's you want to know what i did it for because i was born too soon and i and started too late that's why and i think that line is so evocative oh god yes and then she continues with what i have in me i could have been better than any of you what i got in me what I've been holding down inside of me, if I ever let it out, there wouldn't be signs big enough. There wouldn't be lights bright enough. And then it goes into the song. I just love that line. Like just the, like it kind of is saying like, I now I'm going to show you what's inside of me, but like, maybe not like she, this, the song is also a breakdown. It doesn't mean this is like, what's, what's going to be put up in the, you know, what she's imagining is inside of her. 
you know, that like it's that kind of mystery that I love like in characters like we don't really know what's inside of Rose like <laughs> so yeah it's it definitely that whole scene really opens yeah. up blows the lid off I mean if you haven't already figured out who Rose is it drives it home right well because then you think about it like there is so much we don't know about her like why like we, they don't get into her her childhood at all you see her with her father like there's um but there's it's basically just to like uh, it gets an opening scene that is there and it's gone you know and you you don't get a sense of like uh anything that could have influenced the way she is now you really have to just like imagine or like find little clues you know and the- to be honest i think that was partially based on what they had information wise there was mm-hmm. so much that was so unclear and when I read the book, it really drove this point home too. When the girls were growing up, they didn't even know how old they were. Their mother falsified uh, their ages throughout mm-hmm. their childhood, so they would always be right. Because she younger. says, "I wonder how old I am." At the, she really was lamb. confused. Yeah. And in fact, I think because June Hovick. So just like to sort of bring this back to the real world, um, Louise died shortly after the show came out. I think I don't think she maybe she lived till like nineteen seven. She didn't live that long. Yeah. But she had cancer, just like her mother. Rose died of cancer. Then the book came out. Louise died of cancer. Louise and June actually got into a big fight after the musical came out because Louise felt that it wasn't a fair, uh, June felt that it wasn't a fair portrayal of their mother. Mm. So they didn't speak until June got a call one day that Louise was dying and they reconnected before she died. But June lived into her nineties and was an actress. If you actually, if you ever want to fall down an interesting rabbit hole online, June Hovick led a fascinating life. She left home at 13 because she had to get out from the oppressive thumb of her mother and she built a career that lasted throughout. I mean, she had a TV show in the 50s. She was an active working actress pretty much until she died. So she had some interesting stuff. But at the end of the day, she died. She was like 93 or 94. It wasn't entirely clear. She happened to have been born in Canada by accident. Her mother was there and went into labor. And <laughs> so she was able to use that as an excuse to falsify records very easily. Uh... Um, but yeah, the girls were very confused about their own background and their own age and I don't know how much clarity there even was on their father um, or what kind of role he played in their lives. So I think Rose's background is a mystery, period. Yeah. Did they have the same father? I believe they're very close in age. They were like mm-hmm. 15 months apart or so. Like they were yeah. very tightly together. So I think they probably did have the same father, but I don't know how clear it was. He clearly wasn't part of their lives, but. Right. And this was an era so different from ours because you could just, records meant nothing. I mean, you weren't assigned a social security number at birth. There were very few ways to centralize people's information. So it was very easy for people to just say whatever they wanted and make up names and make up birth dates and make up identities. So I think today, a lot of these mysteries would be solved a lot faster, but back then they were just, especially with how much they moved around, they were just unsolvable. What a strange time. (laughs) So different from how we live today. So different. Great. Well, let's go to our next section. Why is this so good? So we're going to be talking about the song Bad Bet from On the 20th Century. Uh, So why did you pick this song for Why is this so good? Because I genuinely want to answer that question because it's one of those (laughs) songs that I cannot explain it. It's a weird number. And yet I've listened to it so many times. (laughs) Like, why do I keep listening to this song? And I think on the 20th century in general is a very interesting musical with a very interesting history. And this number, if done properly, has to just be a showstopper. 
it's I love Lily songs and on the 20th century I think they are and it's just such great writing from uh that writing team Condom and Betty Comden Adolph Green what's his name <laughs> Cy Coleman Cy Coleman uh Cy Coleman I, were they writing for did they know who they had in the show at the time do you know i'm were not 100 sure I, I okay Tom? i would have to think that they were only because if you listen to it i don't think there was such an abundance of people who could have done this part just right like, gross. like i think they had to have a pretty good idea that madeline Kahn was interested or willing max i've got to reread this play babette and get oscar and the mary magdalene play out of my mind an evening late in june a formal dinner at Babette's. The talk is sharp and swift, and yet the atmosphere is fraught with tension. Everyone is there. Corrupt <laughs> and debonair. A Mayfair set convention. Babette speaks. I gave this small soiree to tell you all the shrieking news. I'm leaving Rodney's bed. The joke is that I'm also leaving Nigel. What a shabby lot. Bedecked with jewels between two fools. All hope is gone. The dance goes on and make the music hot. Babette, if you think that you can throw away, and so on, so on, so on, so on, so on. Nigel speaks, what? Babette, this charade will have to end, and so on, so on, so on, so on. Rodney, why, you filthy sw- and so on, so on, so on, so on. And the guests chatter, and so on, so on, so on, so on, so Babette! My cigarette is out. Oh, Rodney, please get me a light. I need another drink. She sneers and hurls her glass of gin at Nigel. Shabby lot. I'll get away to Saint Tropez in gin and bitters, drown my jitters. Lily, forget Babette. You'll be magnificent as Mary Magdalene. Yes. Take your wine away. Reborn am I today. Redemption. Our sins will be forgiven. And we shall be. No. I need another drink. I think I'd like... Timeline-wise, so this was after Blazing Saddles, after... I mean, it was, like, at the height of her career, basically. So getting her was a huge coup, and getting to take advantage of her vocal range was probably something really exciting for them. Unfortunately, On the 20th Century is one of the most derailed musicals I can possibly think of in terms of just things going (laughs) wrong. And in the case of Madeline Kahn, it was just a very tough role. Um, And she was not necessarily happy doing it. She was not necessarily comfortable doing it. She left pretty quickly and was replaced with Judy Kay, who did a great job too, but had a very mm-hmm. different approach to it. And then of course in 2015, Kristen Chenoweth played the role on Broadway. That's what which, I saw. Yeah. Yeah. And look, Kristen Chenoweth knocks it out of the park in so many ways. I'm a purist. I always feel like Madeline Kahn was just in a class by herself mm-hmm. and um, whatever she's doing, I don't know if you've listened to any live recordings or only the cast album, but whatever she's doing on stage which obviously we can't see because it's a soundboard recording from the 70s. Right. She's getting laughs nonstop. 
whatever <laughs> Madeline Kahn is doing during this number and Veronique, she's just getting the audiences in stitches. Yeah. So let's go. Like, this is a long number, actually. Um, it is, depending on the recording of it, because I feel like the original recording stripped down a lot of mm. what was in it, which was common back then to sort of minimize, I guess, costs and recording time. I feel like if you want to get a full sense of what the song is like, a live recording or Kristen Chenelis is better. If you just want to hear right. the basic gist of the number, the original one gives you that with like basically Madeline Kahn does everything, whereas other productions have given or other recordings, there are other people singing, there are other people talking, there's other stuff going on. Yeah. So what is happening in this, in this song? What is, she's basically saying, I'm, I'm going to do this play. <laughs> I'm going to do this really fancy, fun play instead of playing Mary Magdalene with my ex, whom I hate. Yeah. So she's going to do this fun play called Babette, which is basically sounds like some kind of Noel Coward thing, like a knockoff Noel Coward kind of thing. And um, she's debating and internally and externally whether she should do that or whether she should do Mary Magdalene and do something really dramatic. Like, you know, basically it's like playing it safe or taking a risk and she really wants to play it safe and have fun. But then she also is drawn to this idea of the riskier role, even though it means working with her ex who she hates for obvious reasons, if you see the show, but at the same time, it, it's an internal struggle. And I think what makes it such a great number in that way is that it's done with such comedy. I mean, like there's a section and I'm not going to emulate it right now on the podcast, but she's like, <laughs> You know, I'm having fun over here, but no, wait, I'm going to go for salvation. No, 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 I'm having fun over here. No, 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 wait, salvation. No, 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 salvation. No, salvation. It's like, it's a very dramatic back and forth. And I think that's where you get someone like a Madeline Kahn. This is why they probably had to know they were writing for her because Madeline right. Kahn this is one of the few people I can think of that I'd immediately be like, write that kind of number and write it with soprano singing and all that. There aren't that many women I can point to. Let us eat salvation. My cigarette is out. Gin is never strong enough. I live for endless loving, boozing, dancing, cruising. We shall be safe. Boozing, dancing, cruising. We shall be safe. Rodney Nigel, Rodney, boozing, dancing, cruising. We shall be My cigarette is saved. My cigarette is saved. My cigarette is saved. Where are you, Rodney Nigel, Nigel, Rodney, Rodney, Nigel, Oscar, 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 Oscar. Oscar. Goodbye, Oscar. Goodbye, Mary Magdalene. Max, I love your play. Max, I'll do this play. Every, not every song for her, but the ones I am remembering from the show are like really fun, like arias almost like well for... yeah that's yeah that's the point is it was supposed to be a satire of opera and so they mm -hmm. had madeline Kahn, and they had and let's not ignore the slouch in the corner here i mean they had john Cullum playing the male lead who is as far uh, as i'm yeah. concerned one of the most underrated talents of the 20th century he and the 21st i mean he's not dead but um <laughs> i think about like his role in 1776 and he did on a clear day and all that right. and he really gave off this very dramatic presence, an operatic presence. So I think having that kind of mock opera thing, they were a good team. It's a shame they didn't get to do it. I think they did it together for like eight weeks. But mm. um, but yeah, this definitely contributes to the mock opera elements of the show. You don't get as many soprano comedy roles written. I think that's part of it too. To like, at least nowadays, there are a lot more, I guess, 
back in the day, but like, um, but yeah, like songs written for soprano comedians. Um, it's so rare because I feel like there is this sense that the soprano, and this is, this goes back to opera traditions. And I talked about this earlier. The soprano is the, you know, like the good, pure representation of like, it's, it's a very one-dimensional representation of women in a lot of ways. And I think we started to see more complex sopranos. And then we started to see people say, eh, do they really need to sing that high? <laughs> yeah. Let's just have them belt it out instead. And so I think getting a really complex soprano role is a very, it's a very narrow window of time that there was interest in writing complex soprano. Right. Roles. I mean, I think also you have to have somebody like Kristen Chenoweth who comes in and is like, I'm here. Like I need stuff to do. <laughs> kind of oh yeah. Like, I am that person. Like I need, you know, I mean, I guess Glinda is like a modern day, I guess a more contemporary type of soprano comedic role, but yeah, there really aren't that many. And it I probably take somebody like of her caliber to say, I need something. <laughs> well, yeah, because <laughs> either I revive this or write something new. Awesome. Well, let's move on to our final section. Something wonderful. Uh, just something uh, musical theater that we are excited about or want to give a shout out to? Well, personally, I am really excited for the Sondheim things that are coming out this year. We've got Merrily finally making its way back to Broadway. Only took <laughs> 42 years. Um, so that's really exciting. And then, of course, the Sondheim review that's opening on the West End, which is Bernadette's West End debut, actually. So right. um, there's a lot of I, I just have a feeling that. <clears throat> We're kind of in the Sondheim tribute era as long as, you know, because he died at a time when there wasn't much going on in terms of theater and he had his 90th birthday at a time where there was nothing going on. So I think we're going to see a lot of Sondheim tributes for the next, like, say, three to five years. And then it might sort of peter down to the occasional Sondheim thing. But I think we're in that sort of Sondheim let's all celebrate Sondheim as much as we possibly can kind of era. Yeah. Um, well, I'm going to see, I guess, his new sh- his new show uh here oh, we yeah. are <laughs> um at uh the shed which uh i don't know too much about it so i'm really gonna go in like completely not knowing anything but i guess i kind of did that for road show too thank you all for listening to this episode of scene to song you can write to scene to song at gmail.com with a comment or question about an episode or about musical theater, or if you'd like to be a podcast guest. Love this podcast? Help it find more listeners by rating it on Apple Podcasts and leaving a review. Follow on Instagram at scene to song, on x slash Twitter at scene song, and on Facebook at scene to song with Shoshana Greenberg podcast. Sign up for our monthly e-newsletter at scenetosong.substack.com and contribute on our Patreon. The theme music you are hearing is by Julia Meinwald. And check back here in two weeks for our next episode. <laughs>